I invite you to take a Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 9. There's one underneath the pew in front of you, perhaps that you can reach. And I think the page is 1427. If I remember it from the first service, I don't have my bulletin here with me. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. We're going to pick up where we left off a few weeks ago and keep on moving through this glorious book. What a great revelation of the Lord Jesus. I love the book of Hebrews. What a mingling of vision of God and man and our relationship. Picking it up at verse 15, Hebrews 9. For this reason, referring back now to verse 14, which we looked at a few weeks ago, where our consciences are cleansed by the blood shedding of Jesus on our behalf. For this reason, because he shed that blood for us, he's the mediator of a new covenant. In order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the old covenant or the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, or some of your versions, and this is a good translation if you have it this way, where a will is, like a, like a last will and testament, where a covenant or a will is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant or a will is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant, talking about the Mosaic covenant now, was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things were cleansed with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, you might think that God would be more careful in the language that he uses to describe himself or explain the relationship that he has with man. Frequently in the Bible, God uses language to get at who he is and how he relates to people that carries a freight of possible misunderstanding. And you kind of shrink back and say, ooh, why did he say that? For example, you all know that the second coming of Jesus is compared in the Bible with a thief in the night. You say, well, I would have never done that. A thief compared to Jesus, that's bad, right? Well, there's an Old Testament psalm I remember I read one time, it just startled me, where God in his wrath is compared to a drunken man awaking from a stupor in a rage. I said, ooh, what a comparison. God, don't you want to be more circumspect in the language that you use to get at who you are and how you relate to us? Why does God do that? Why does God in many places in the Bible, use language, make comparisons and analogies that are loaded with possible 
abuse and misunderstanding. And here's the reason. All human language is loaded with possible abuse and misunderstanding. Because God is unique. He is utterly different from us in many, many ways. And yet he wants to communicate with us. The only language he's got to communicate with us is our language. And our language is built up all around our experiences. And we're not like God. For example, let me give you an example, a real common one. A very common image or metaphor or analogy, comparison in the Bible, is servanthood. You're called a servant of God. Sometimes he describes himself as a servant of you. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Well, as soon as you hear that, should you think, he called me a servant, so I can't be his child. Servants aren't children. Servants are servants and children are children. The children live in the house. The servants, they live out in the slave quarters. So I guess I'm not a child. And do I have any place at the father's table? Will I have any inheritance? Slaves didn't get any inheritance. So if I'm a servant of God, I'm not a child. I don't get any inheritance. I have to live on the edge of the farm. You see how utterly misleading God's language is. Which is all he's got to work with. So that every time you think of an analogy or a comparison, you've got to ask, okay, what is true in this analogy and what is misleading in this analogy? Now, in this text, there's a comparison made that's just fraught with dangers. And it's the comparison between the new covenant and a last will and testament. The new covenant and a last will and testament. Now, before I get into it and show you why it's so full of danger and why it's so full of good truth, too, let me review something. Because a lot of new people here and some of you don't remember from a few weeks ago when we're talking about the new covenant. Let me just tell you what the new covenant is. You see where I'm getting this word, verse 15. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. What's that? The new covenant is the arrangement concerning how God relates to his people, which was promised in Jeremiah 31, 31, and is quoted explicitly here in Hebrews 8, verses 10 to 12. So I'll quote it for you, reading Hebrews 8, 10, and you'll hear exactly the words of what the new covenant is. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. So he's looking into the future from 500 years before Christ, and he's saying there's coming a new arrangement of how God is going to relate to his people. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they will be my people. Now, verse 12. Of Hebrews 8. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. So let me try to put this in my own words now. In the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant given at Mount Sinai, God wrote his will in summary form on stone. 
and he delivered it to the people and says, that's the way my people should live. And you can hold it in your hand. You can read it. It's out there. And unless something happens inside, very often the flesh rises up and says, I don't like your rules. I'll do it my own way. I don't care if you say don't steal. I'm not going to report all my income on this bleem income tax form because it's so thick this year. Who cares whether you're honest? That's the way I felt when I got it in the mail yesterday. I said, look at that thing. Who could be honest with a thing like that? You just want to throw it on the ground. It's so thick. I hire people to do that, and I still get upset looking at it. If I had to do my own taxes, I'd probably be in jail. So we, our flesh just rises up and says, you tell me to be honest? You tell me not to commit adultery, not to lust, not to kill, keep the Sabbath day holy, don't make any images? Whew. That's the old, the old covenant. Outside to pressing on us with legal constraint, do this. Now, in the new covenant, this law, he says, gets written on the heart. And put in the mind. What's that? That's God going from outside to inside by his spirit, taking his will and shaping us so that we love it. We look at it now and we say, I've got God. Why would I want to lie? I've got God. Why would I want to steal? I've got God. Why would I want to commit adultery? I've got God. Of course, I'll keep the Sabbath day and worship him on it. I love the will of God. That's Christianity. Christianity is not a list outside pushing on you, making you do what you don't want to do. Christianity is God taking the list, going inside in love Changing you, writing it on your heart, making you a new person so that you begin to have affections for him that are so transforming that you love his will. That's half the new covenant. The other half that I read in verse 12 was, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and remember their sins no more. Before God can mercifully come into your life with his Holy Spirit and write his law on your heart, He's got to forgive your sins because he doesn't inhabit unforgiven people. How does he forgive your sins? He sends his son to die for our sins. So the blood of Jesus is the ground and foundation and power behind the new covenant. So now we've got two things that the new covenant means. The new covenant is this new arrangement that God has with his people. And first, it is a sacrifice of his son, whereby our guilt and our condemnation are removed as we trust in him. And now as a forgiven, accepted child, he moves into us by his spirit and he starts to write the law here, not just out there, and make us new so that we love his law. So here's the theological jargon. If you like theology, I like theology. I'll give you the jargon. The new covenant is the purchase of our justification and our sanctification. God acquits us, reckons us righteous, imputes to us the righteousness of his son, and then he moves in on us and he begins to make us holy and bring us into conformity to Jesus Christ by his spirit. That's the new covenant. Now, here in this verse, verse 15 and following, he picks this up and he says, 
Let's look at verse 15 together. Christ is the mediator of this covenant. Because a death has happened. That's the death of Christ. And that death now redeems us from what the law couldn't redeem us from because there were only animal sacrifices. And animal sacrifices can't take away anybody's sins. They can only point forward to the real sacrifice. And this happened in order that those who were called might receive an eternal inheritance. So far, verse 15 is familiar. Nothing new in verse 15 that we haven't seen already in the book of Hebrews. But... You get to verse 16, and it's very jarring. The comparison with a last will and testament. Let's read it. For where a covenant is, or where a will is, same word in Greek. If your translation says will or covenant, Sympathize with the translators because it's tough to translate the Bible. Really tough. Really hard to translate the Bible because the word diatheke, Greek, is the same word. It's used all the way through. There's no different words here. But that word can mean covenant in a non-testamentary sense and a covenant in a last will and testament sense. And so the context has to decide which one you're going to translate. And the NASB made one choice. They left it covenant. And most of your versions, the NIV and the RSV and others, translate it will. New English word, same Greek word, and that's probably good because it's clearly a will here. A last will and testament. Because it says, where there's a will or covenant, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant or a will is valid only when men are dead. For it is never in force while the one who made it is alive. So it's real clear what he's talking about. A last will and testament. Now, um, I don't know if I need to do this in this service. In the first service, I took a minute here and explained what that is for the kids. We all know what a last will and testament is. Uh, if you are an adult and you don't have a will... You call a lawyer this week or find a friend or get a computer program and write yourself a will. Otherwise, Uncle Sam's going to take money that God ought to get or your kids ought to get. Okay, get a will. At any rate, a will is an official document that you have drawn up so that when you die, what was yours becomes who you want it to go to. That's what we've got here. Now, why did he do this? Why did he compare the new covenant to a last will and testament? That's really dangerous. That's really dangerous. God's last will and testament. That bother you? That ought to bother you. God's last will and testament, so that when he dies, he makes sure that those who remain get what they're supposed to. That's, why did he do this? Why did he bring this in? Five reasons. Number one, very simply, that's what the word meant in Greek. Diatheke meant last will and testament in almost all the Greek documents where we have it. Only in the Greek Old Testament does diatheke, translating the Hebrew, berit, covenant, take on a new set of meanings. 
But everywhere in the Greek world, this word meant last will and testament. So that's the first reason. Second reason why he did this. He saw historically that the new covenant only came into force on the basis of the blood of the mediator, Christ dying. And so he thought, hmm, a covenant that has to have a death to bring it into force. That's like a will. So he calls it a will. Third reason. He looks back where this word was used in the Old Testament to the old or the first covenant. And he, according to verse 18, he notices something. He says, therefore, even the first diatheke, the first covenant, was not inaugurated without blood. And he ponders for a minute. He says, now, what does that mean? Why is there so much blood in the Old Testament? It's a bloody religion, this Israelite religion. There's blood everywhere. You, you sanctify the curtains with blood and the animals have to be shed with blood. You've got to put your hands on this dead animal and you've got to sprinkle the blood on the books. And what is this blood thing? And he thought, it's all about death. There's got to be a death. Death is at the heart of life. There's got to be death so that sinners can have life. And so he said, even there, even there in the Old Testament, there's a pointer towards a death that's got to happen in order for all the promises of life and hope and joy and righteousness and peace to come about. You've got to have death. And he says, that's all about a will. If God is planning it this way, that there's got to be somehow a death for all this good to come, then it's like a will because there's got to be a death for a will. So he sees pointers and foreshadowings even in the old covenant of this will-like covenant. Reason number four. I think this is the most important reason in the context. Verse 15, at the end, it says that Christ became a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the eternal, what? Inheritance. Now, just think what that word triggers in your mind. It, it just get rid of all your biblical jargon here and just think of your own family. If you were getting together as a family with mom and dad or grandma or where, and you started talking about the inheritance, you couldn't think long without thinking of the will. There's not going to be any inheritance without a will. Somebody with the money wrote the will. And he decides what will become of the inheritance. The estate. The bank accounts. The car. The house. The precious jewelry. That's the inheritance. What's going to become of it? Well, who wrote the will? What does the will say? And so when he uses that word inheritance in verse 15... The wheels are spinning. If there's an inheritance that comes from this covenant, this covenant is a will. It's a last will and testament. That's reason number four. The last reason, number five, is probably the most important theologically, if not contextually. Namely, you don't negotiate a will. It's often written for your kids before they're born. Or it's written for people that don't even know it's coming to them when you write it. It's not negotiated. A will is a unilateral document. One person or a couple writes the will 
it gets certified and it is power. And those heirs, they take it or leave it. They don't negotiate with it. They don't, after the parent dies, look at it and say, I don't like that. I'll change that. It's over. It is written and what is written is written. Now this writer, he thinks, okay, you've got a covenant. You've got a death that brings the covenant into force so that there can be justification and sanctification and the law written on the heart and an everlasting inheritance. And he says, God did that. God wrote that. I didn't write it. I didn't have anything to do with it. I didn't negotiate with God and say, hey, I'd like this much inheritance. Put me there. Or I would like to get it for keeping my nose clean here, but not here. So write in if he keeps his nose clean this way and not right there. You do that. Make the will that way. It's, it's just all one-sided. And you know when he wrote it? When did God write this will? He wrote it in eternity. I get that from 2 Timothy 1.9, where the grace of God in Christ comes to us from before the foundation of the world. 2 Timothy 1.9. Christ is planned. Grace is planned. Sin is foreknown. And therefore... The one-sidedness of the will is guaranteed by having been written in eternity. So, there it is. The new covenant is compared in verse 16 and 17 with a last will and testament. Now, this is dangerous, I said. This is language that is so fraught with blasphemous possibilities, you wonder why a biblical writer under the inspiration of God would dare to talk like this. Four questions pressed on me as I was working on this. Number one, did God write a last will and testament knowing that someday he would die and wanted to leave his possessions to another? That seems to be what it says. Number two, who is the executor of God's last will and testament? Usually we decide who will be the executor of our will, and it is never the one who dies. Never, never, never. Anybody have a will and is written in the will, the one who dies shall be the executor. Anybody written a will like that? Nobody. You don't do it that way. Dead people can't execute wills. Who's going to be the executor of this will? That's question number two. Here's question number three. Was it not in force before the death of Christ? If not... How did David get forgiven? How did Moses get forgiven? How did Abel get forgiven? How did Miriam get forgiven? Or didn't they enjoy any forgiveness in the Old Testament? Last question. Who are the heirs of this will? Did God write his will with a mere, open-ended, unspecified, non-particular group or did he write names in his will? John Piper Grim Cobramet Let's take these questions one at a time. Number one Did God write his last will and testament because he knew that one day he would die and wanted to leave his possessions to an appropriate person or group? 
Can I hand in your exams right now, please? <laughs> the answer is given in chapter 2, verse 14. We've looked at this verse many times. And we'll look at it again, probably. It's a great verse. Since the children, now those are the heirs that he means to give an inheritance to. Since the children share in flesh and blood, that is mortal nature, he himself likewise, talking about the son now, the second person of the Trinity, God the son, he himself likewise also partook of the same flesh and blood. Why? So that through death he might render powerless him who has the power of death and deliver those who've been held in bondage by the fear of death all their lives. Yes and no. Human language, comparisons like this say yes and no. Did God write a last will and testament knowing that he would die and willing that upon his death, the inheritance of God would become the inheritance of the children of God? And the answer is a very carefully qualified yes, but a very carefully qualified no. I see it like this. God the Father and God the Son face off in eternity for seeing all that's coming in their great design of the history of redemption, and they make a covenant, and they say, I do will. The Father says to the Son, I do will to experience death, that I might from inside death destroy death. And bring to my redeemed people life. And to that end, would you, my alter ego, as it were, very God of very God, clothe yourselves with mortal, diable nature so that you and I in you might experience death in order that it might be destroyed and our children might not have to perish eternally. And the son says, I will, and clothes himself in that infinite mystery of the incarnation with human flesh and in his human nature tastes death. We're talking great mysteries here. So if I use the language carefully and say, no, the immortal does not die because he cannot die. First Timothy 1.17. He is immortal, invisible, God only wise. He cannot die. And yet he wills to experience death, to taste death. So that his will, his last will and testament, might come into force through his tasting and experiencing death. And so he clothes the second member of the Trinity with human flesh 
And he dies in that human nature. And the answer is yes and no. Second question. Who's the executor of God's will? We write our wills and we say our wives or our eldest son or our uncle or our nephew or our friend will execute this will. They will take the will and make sure that what I've written here comes to pass down to the letter. Who's going to do that in God's will? And the answer is the same person who dies. And here again, language fails, right? The analogy breaks down. Never happens like that in human existence. Never. And yet that's exactly the way it's going to happen. He is the mediator of a new covenant in that he dies and so releases the inheritance. And he's the mediator of a new covenant in that he rises and executes the inheritance on behalf of the children. Now, if you want to see this, turn with me to chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. I've pointed you forward to these verses many times, and we'll be pointing to them many times again, because you need to read Bible books backwards. You see, the writers know the end when they start them. That's one of the great advantages of a writer over a reader. Writers know where they're going. Readers don't know where they're going. So you got to read backwards. If you only read something once... You generally won't understand the stuff at the beginning. He knew what he was doing at the beginning and you didn't. And you get to the end, you say, oh, oh, and now you got to go back and get it. These two verses are the mystery uncorker in many ways. 1320, now the God of peace who brought up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, now, let me just stop there for a minute. There's a sermon I wanted to preach here, and maybe I'll preach it when I get there, but I'll give it to you in two minutes. There's a sermon here. It's not today's sermon, but it's so closely related. i got to, I got to sum up this sermon for you. This is good word order, and it's good translation when it says, the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd through the blood of the eternal covenant. That through phrase modifies the resurrection. He brought up Christ, the good shepherd, through the blood. What in the world? You know what that means? That means that the resurrection is owing to the blood of Christ and its value. That means that God rewarded the son's dying with rising because of the value of his dying. You remember that great therefore in Philippians 2.11? Well, it's 2.9. 2.9. He was obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Therefore, therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name. What's this therefore? It's therefore because he died, because he shed his blood, because he was so perfectly obedient. Therefore, God raised him. In other words, Christ died for his own resurrection. Or, to put it really provocatively, and yet not without biblical warrant, Christ is the heir of his own will. You know how I know that? Chapter 1, verse 2. 
God has appointed him heir of all things. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. So Christ is the heir of the will that he effected in his dying and executes in his living. He is the first heir of what he has accomplished. That's the end of that sermon. I'm not preaching on that today. But it's so full of implications for how you get united to Christ and become fellow heir with him that you take it home and think about it. But the main point in this text for our purposes is what we see in verse 21. May God equip you in every good thing, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. That's the new covenant. He's working in us. He's writing the law in our heart. He's putting the law in our minds. He's working within us through Jesus Christ. There's the executor. Now, this is just filled with hope, folks. I hope you hear this. Christ and his father wrote the will for your inheritance. Christ clothed himself with humanity and he died in order to release the inheritance for you so that you don't have to die, but can inherit it without perishing. And now he rises from the dead and he is the executor of the will. He wrote it, he died to effect it, and he rose to execute it. So the reason this is so encouraging to me is because if this were not true, the yoke and the burden of the law would be very heavy. But if this is true, when God says to us last Sunday, what does the Lord require of you? But to fear the Lord your God. And those other four things, that would feel so heavy if Christ were not risen and we're going to write them and he himself says, I'm alive to execute this. I'll do this for you. I'll do this in you. Rest in me. You come to me. Don't come trembling to that law and say, okay, I got to prove myself now to God. I got to be something for God. I got to earn something for God. Don't come like that. Come and say, wow, there's a will and an inheritance. There's one who died in my place to release the inheritance. And not only that, there's one who's risen from the dead and he's the executor and he comes and he executes the will on me, in me, for me. And my job, trust him, love him, rest in him, receive his executive power in your life. That's good news. Question number three. Was it in force before he died? If not, what about David? Moses, Miriam, Abel, all the sinners. They were all sinners, these saints in the Old Testament. Did they not experience forgiveness? Look at verse 18. This is the troubling verse. Therefore, even... The first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. No, I I meant to read 17 first. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. For it is never in force while the one who made it lives. So there's you got the troubling verse. Verse 17. 
It's never enforced while the one who made it lives. It's only enforced when he dies. So is it not enforced then in the Old Testament? Is there no portion of the new covenant like forgiveness of sins that David tasted? Now verse 18. I jumped the gun. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated with blood. Why does he say that? Even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. Now, here's my effort to get at this. This is a tough question. See if you think this is fair. It's true that the Messiah had not come. The decisive atoning blood of the Messiah had not been shed. And therefore, the full-blown new covenant will and testament could not come into force any more than John Piper's will today can come into force until I die. Yet, he says, blood was being shed and was all pointing to that. And for the true saints who knew that the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin, according to Hebrews 10.4, looked through the blood to one day God doing something they knew not what that would be sufficient to take away their sins. And so they trusted in that future grace. And God reckoned the blood of Christ sufficient to give them a portion of the new covenant. Now, 2,000 years before Jesus, by forgiving their sins. Not the whole thing. In fact, it says in Hebrews 11, 39, and 40 that these all did not inherit the promises so that they could enjoy with us the full-blown inheritance. We'll see that when we get there in chapter 11. But I'm arguing that a portion of the new covenant blessing is anticipated and enjoyed by Old Testament saints as they look through the animal sacrifices to the grace of God down the, the halls of history to what they could not see and yet believed would be sufficient to cover their sins. And for that, God, as it says in Genesis 15, uh, two, four, somewhere, six, he reckoned it to Abraham as righteousness. Abraham was justified, according to Romans 4, on the basis of the blood of Jesus. And so this death of Christ stretches in two directions. Thousands of years backwards, it was bringing blessing. And thousands of years forward, right now in this service, some are being freed from the fear of death and from the consciousness of guilt because they're saying, well, if it can stretch back to forgive an adulterer and a murderer like David, then on this side of the death of the one who wrote the will, it could forgive my adultery. And there's adulterers in this room. There's fornicators in this room. You know what Paul wrote when he wrote to the church at Corinth? He listed off homosexuality and fornication and adultery and other kinds of uncleanness. And he said, such were many of you. And I think if we were honest, I could probably look out here. And if I had a prophetic eye, I could just go from heart to heart and say, such were and maybe are many of you. And so the hope here is this death is so powerful. This death is so sufficient that it releases the forgiveness of God and the inheritance of eternal life backward thousands of years and forward thousands of years into this room right now for those of you who will respond to God's call.
to faith. Last question, very briefly. Who are the heirs of this last will and testament? Did God write a will with no particular people in mind, no children in view? Or did God write a will with a family in view that he would call to himself? And who are the beneficiaries and heirs of the inheritance? Another way to ask it would be, uh, are there blanks or are there names in the will? Does it say, uh, I will bequeath to John Piper the righteousness of my son. And on the basis of that righteousness, the powerful working of the executor in his life to bring him to faith and to keep him holy and to purify him day by day and to make him stand blameless before the throne. Is that the way the will reads? I think the answer is in the word called in verse 15. It says, And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. In order that, now skip to the main verb of that clause. Skip over that middle part. He's the mediator of a new covenant. In order that those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. There are those whom God calls, and these are the heirs. And so I close with this very utterly crucial, existential, practical, relevant, eternally important question right now. Do you hear God's I plead with you to open your spiritual eyes to behold the glory of the Lord in the gospel. I plead with you right now to open the spiritual ears of your heart to hear the voice of your shepherd. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. I'm pleading with you right now to hear the voice of your shepherd. He raised the good shepherd of the sheep to gather the sheep from all the tribes, all the tongues, all the nations. And who are they? Anybody who hears the voice of the shepherd and believes. Anybody who sees the glory of God in the gospel and believes. Do you hear the call of God? There is a call that is going forth right now from God into particular lives. And I beg of you, do not resist that call. Let's pray. Father, this is an awesome moment. And I pray that you would issue 
a powerful call. Indeed, I pray that you would overcome all resistance and effectually call people into your inheritance. We know that you are infinitely wise. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How inscrutable are his ways and how unsearchable are his judgments. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been your counselor, Lord? Who has ever given a gift to you of any kind that we should then obligate you or put you in the position of owing us anything for from you? is the call, and through you is the call, and to you is the glory of having called. And so I beseech you, Father, issue that call in Jesus' Christ.